Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am your host, David Rothkopf, and at the moment, I am in sunny, warm Palo Alto, California. Um, joining us from a variety of locations are Corey Shockey of the IISS, who is in London, England. And in Washington, D.C., we have both Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University, and we have Bonnie Jenkins, who's a visiting fellow at the Brookings Institution and is the founder and president of the Women of Color Advancing Peace, Security, and Conflict Transformation nonprofit organization, Welcome, Bonnie, for the first time. Um, that's a very long acronym. Uh, actually, the, uh, the the title is long, um, but the acronym is WCAPS, so W-C-A-P-S. Oh, that's so, better. Yes, and, and um, thank you, David, for having me here. No, no, it's a, it's a pleasure to have you here. And, um, you know, I, I, I want to get to all of the big, important developing stories uh, in this pod and also in the one we do uh, for later in the week. Um, but of course, Corey, I've gotten a lot of emails recently um, that have wondered if, in fact, the rumor is true and that you lent the tiara of optimism <laughs> to Meghan Markle for use during the royal wedding. There are no better nerds than deep state radio nerds. I delight in seeing that. <laughs> um, well, no, but she was wearing a tiara, and and I, the whole feeling I got, you know, I, I'll give you an image that you you don't want to necessarily deal with. But I was in California, and I couldn't sleep, and so I got up, and I sort of padded out into the hotel room and turned on uh, you know the little living room area, and I turned on the television. And there was the royal wedding. And so I thought, well, okay. And I went and I put on my most. Cynical. Oh, David, you know you wanted to watch the wedding. <laughs> well, the thing is, I, put, I was very cynical. I'm like a t- total anti-monarchist. And, um, and I thought, I will watch this and scoff at it. And within five minutes, I was weeping profusely, which continued for hours. <laughs> it was sweet. And at a time when... The political leadership in our country is so rude and so abrasive and and making people wonder if they know what our country is. It was so beautiful to see mm-hmm. that young woman so clearly in love on her wedding day, her mother beaming with pride that all of the hundred nice little touches like the bride's bouquet being left after the ceremony on the tomb of, on the memorial to the unknown soldier in Westminster Abbey. It it was just, it was a super sweet reminder of what both Britain and the United States 
when we bother to, uh, what makes so magnetic and so centripetal uh, our soft power. Yeah, well, I, that's that's right. I mean, I the, the U.S.-British relations were in a downward spiral, and then you moved there, and then this happened. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I fixed the couple up. Actually, they didn't know. That's each other the untold story. <laughs> that is, it's the it's the untold story. And Bonnie, I, this is this, you, know, you spent a career in the State Department, and I and I know this is not why you're here, but I have to tell you, a bunch of my friends who are African Americans emailed me after this royal wedding and they said it was so amazing to see an event of this sort that was actually you know a mixed crowd um it was it was really it was really so wonderful to see that i mean you know going back to I mean, what we're just saying here i mean with all of the negativity um that we've been hearing and all of the you know um really bad things that have been said about people who are who are diverse um and to see that, uh, you know, the diversity at the wedding and the different colors of people who are playing a role in different parts of the wedding, not to mention actually, you know, the, the mother of the bride and the bride herself. Um, it's such a contrast to, to what's happening here. I just felt like I just want to stay in the euphoria for a while. I didn't want to <laughs> turn, I didn't want to turn on the TV. I didn't want to turn on anything. I didn't want to get back to reality here in the U.S. I just wanted to stay in the euphoria of what could be. You know, and and not that you know Britain doesn't have its own history. Of course, it has a history, but you know it was nice to see what's possible, uh, and seeing those diverse faces in different parts, all the parts of the of the wedding and everything was really nice. It's really nice. It was it was really nice. But and so Rosa, you know, what was bleak and wrong with it? <laughs> well, you're probably hoping that I will say something Scrooge-like, and I will. Yes, I don't want to disappoint you. Uh, I, I I couldn't help wishing that Meghan Markle would just, you know, give the whole, you know, monarchy thing the finger at some point, and she didn't. Uh, that was my only complaint. You know, can I just break in here to say Dan Byman's point about down beatitude Rosa comes through once again? Yeah. Well, uh, no. I mean, I mean. Right. I, I had to work very, very hard to resist all feelings of joy and optimism, but that's what I do. And so I did resist them. And I thought, well, that's all very nice, Megan, but you're still marrying a guy who thought it was a good joke to wear a Nazi uniform to a party. And you're still marrying into a family that has not really, uh, uh, you know, done a great job, historically speaking, of uh, making the world a better place. And and I wish you would say a few things about that. So I, I so I, I worked very hard to nurture those curmudgeonly thoughts throughout. Wow. <laughs> That's our girl. So, so yeah, glad somebody's got to do it. It was hard work, but someone's got to do it. I, 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 I'm so glad I did not speak to you over the weekend. Um, <laughs> Because that is, I mean, and it's all true. You know, I was watching Prince Philip sitting there watching this whole thing. And I was just imagining that if he had any coherent thoughts in his head during this, they probably weren't very positive. Well, and I sort of wanted Megan to say something like, well, you know, I am marrying this guy, but I'm not going to be a goddamn princess. <laughs> you, take your crown and show off well. <laughs> wow. Um... <laughs> That's, that's that would have been a, a, 
was a damn That would have been good was... television, I'll tell you that. So the question I have been asked most um, by Brits about the royal wedding is, is this a normal church sermon in the United States? Uh, because of because of the Episcopal pastor's sermon about slavery, um, and and it was for me interesting that that was the conversation that that they were thinking about the role of religion in American policy, and it came right on the heels of Walter Russell Mead coming to give a talk at the WWS, and as you know, he thinks a lot about the role of religion in American policies. So it was very much on my mind that one of the things that they were taking away was the riveting sermon and the power of religion in shaping our civic narratives. Well, that is quite interesting. I hope your answer was no, that's not how most American sermons go. But George Clooney but and wife, But George Clooney and his wife attend all weddings in the United States. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, that's right. It is mandatory. It is. <laughs> that was no big deal. Having Oprah there was a big deal, but George Clooney and his wife, they're everywhere. Well, his wife, I got to tell you, she looked great. Wow, no, she, she did. did. I thought that's, she looked wonderful. No, that was, that was, I'm, I think Yellow is going to make a very big comeback. I, yep. I have to tell you, I never really sort of saw this podcast heading in the direction of fashion reportage. <laughs> Or royal family. Well, watch. David, it's nice to know what you talk about. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what we. That's why. That's why you know the deep state is deep. It's nothing else. We are deep. Um, anyway, well, you know, and then the royal wedding sort of came, and you know, we watched that, and we all wept except for Rosa, who was disappointed. And and then you know we wake up, and and it's a new week. And so here are some things that have happened in the new week, and I'll just take them one at a time here. The Secretary of State made a speech at the Heritage Foundation about U.S.-Iran policy in which he laid out 12, um, uh, I wouldn't say they're demands, demands of the, of, of, for, that the U.S. had for Iran. And, and I, I'm not going to characterize all of them, but let me, let me start with you, Bonnie. It seemed to me that if he had added a 13th, it would have been, you know, that the United States uh, uh, demand that the, the Iranians, um, every Iranian adopt a unicorn as a house pet. <laughs> David, are you well, trying to suggest you know, that those were unrealistic? Uh, I mean, I got to tell you, I, I mean, I had read a little bit about what, you know, this plan B or what the idea was going to be. So even, even before I read, even before I heard the speech, I already had a sense of where it was going. And um, it's 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 really uh, it, I don't know what the word is to say you know we we got out of the agreement and then we start making all these demands um, you know I think it's pretty um, presumptuous maybe is one way to put it that we would actually do that um, and you know I most folks who are seriously looking at this don't see how it can possibly work not only did we as you know you know get out of the JCPOA but then we also angered our European partners in doing so. And, you know, they're they're out there trying to figure out how, how to keep the JCPOA going and how to, you know, blunt any kind of potential, any kind of potential uh, sanctions that we may have against them. And then we're talking about we want to work with partners. 
you know, to try to, you know, to try to get the things we want to get. And, you know, we also want to add all these things to the discussion of missiles and every other thing under the sun. It's just, you know, I look at it and I just kind of scratch my head to say, you know, how, how do they really think this is going to happen? Um, and how do they really think this is going to work? Well, that, and that's the thing, Rosa. I mean, for a long time, I didn't really understand what they meant by plan B, but I think in this case, they meant plan B unrealistic, plan B dumbass, plan B, you know. <laughs> well, I don't think, I mean, in answer to Bonnie's question, how, what, how do they think this is going to work? I don't think they do think it's going to work, but I don't think they want it to work. And so I think that that's, that's how it works for them, is that you you put out these demands that you know are ridiculous and impossible, uh, and then you get to say, oh, well, you know, we tried. <laughs> uh, and then you have an excuse, if necessary, to, to you know, enter into direct conflict. You know, it's interesting. I, I, I was uh, up at West Point um, a month or so ago and just chatting with people, sort of saying, well, you know, what are, what are, what are people... What are people here talking about? What do they think is going to happen in the world? What are they worrying about? And every single person I talked to said, everybody thinks we're going to war in Iran. You know, everybody thinks that that's a foregone conclusion. It's just a matter of time. And I said, really? You know, not North Korea, not any of the various other people we could go to war with. And, and the answer was no, everybody thinks this is basically, we're just waiting for the right excuse. Uh, you know, not we, the military, obviously, but we, we the Trump administration. So that that's, you know, that's obviously... Uh, a more cynical way to read it, but but uh, Pompeo's speech certainly was not the speech of a guy who was thinking to himself, you know, how can we find a middle ground? You know, <laughs> it was the speech of somebody who has no expectation that any of these demands will be met, but is putting out some rhetorical markers for future use. Is it true that you go up to West Point to indoctrinate up and coming um, I do. I do. It's officers with the darkest possible view of the world. So that yes, West Point is concerned that the cadets are too optimistic about the future, and therefore Dr. Brooks is <laughs> I come a up welcome ballast to their <laughs> otherwise sunny outlook on the world. And yeah. I say all is lost, and then I leave again for a month or two. And right, Rosa <laughs> is the fog of war. Um, which was the name of her band in high school. But, in, in, Corey, you know, it struck me. I have to say, I'm sorry, yep. go ahead. No, no, go on. I retract. Okay, well, it struck me in listening to this that we were discovering, you know, what the, the, the Pompeo uh, stewardship of the State Department was going to be. Because we, you know, here, given him some points for, you know, hiring people and actually not insulting everybody who's in the building. Um, but it seems to me, and, you know, so he seems to be working in that direction, but it seemed to me that what he's saying is, you know, Rex Tillerson wanted to do diplomacy without a State Department, but Mike Pompeo wants to have a State Department without doing diplomacy. Yes, I think that's right, David. I think that's exactly right. So he he is going to, he... Tom Wright had a terrific piece in The Atlantic looking at uh, Pompeo versus Bolton. And he argued that Pompeo's an ambitious guy. This can't be the last job he wants. Therefore, he has to prove successful as Secretary of State. Therefore, we will have actual diplomacy. And I heard that edifice come crashing down during Pompeo's speech at Heritage this morning because that wasn't diplomacy. That was 
a, a political wish list from the Trump administration that has, that had, it didn't, it wasn't clear about the ends it was trying to achieve. It had only one means to achieve them, which is the toughest sanctions the world has ever seen. It didn't address what in the Eisenhower administration they used to call a horse blanket, which is, if we do this, here's the range of choice others have. And what are we going to do about all of those things? So when challenged by how are you going to get the Europeans to agree to do this when we're in violation of the Iranian agreement, uh, Pompeo's answer was, well, they have some hard choices to make. And so that's not a strategy. No, it's not. Now, Bonnie, when you were in the State Department, you coordinated, um, you know, uh, programs on threat reduction. And I'm wondering if listening to the Pompeo speech, you thought that any threats were reduced. <laughs> <laughs> according to Pompeo, nothing, no threats have been reduced. Um, you know, according according to uh, to what he was saying, you know, it it, it it's still a crazy world, um, and no threats have been reduced, and we should be very fearful. And, you know, he's going to threaten with the sanctions. And if you don't do that, we're going to, you know, fire and brimstone. Um, so, no. And I agree with Corey. There was absolutely nothing diplomatic about what he what he said or what he did. I wasn't I was never particularly optimistic that he would be diplomatic in his new role. There was nothing that really pointed me to thinking that he would be. So, unfortunately for me, um, you know, it's coming out the way he's turning out the way very quickly turning out as I had hoped he would not. Um, and not being diplomatic at all in the way in which he's approaching this and not even reaching out. I mean, if you're going to do negotiations like this, you know, one of the things you do is you reach out to people, uh, parties beforehand, and you discuss what you want to do with them. Of course, in this case, it probably wouldn't have worked anyway because of the way we've treated the other parties to the Iran agreement. But there's nothing like that. It's, you know, we're coming out and we're going to do this and you either you agree with us or you don't. And that is definitely not the point. Yeah, and it sort of seems like it, it could lead in, in a bad way in a, in a few areas, not just with Iran, where, by the way, I, I tend to agree with the, the West Pointers that you met with, Rosa, that it's more likely that we actually have a military or armed conflict of some sort with the Iranians than with the North Koreans. But the North Koreans have got to be watching this um, and, and thinking, um, well, these guys aren't playing fair, and... Uh, they've clearly pulled back a little bit, and it seems like the worm has turned a bit with regard to North Korea um, over the past few days, um, to the point that, you know, I, I'm starting to think that the Trump administration's getting a little bit nervous. But having said that, I heard today that they've already minted challenge coins for the summit between <laughs> President Donald Trump. And, and it well, says in the then it has to go forward. I mean, yeah. <laughs> and it refers on the fronts on the on the challenge coin. It, it refers to Supreme Leader Kim Jong Un and Supreme which, Leader Donald Trump. Um, but but so 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 that's the bit of optimism, right, Rosa? There are going to be challenge coins. So even though there, there seems to be no hope for diplomacy, people will at least get swag. Yes, of course. And that's, you know, really what diplomats uh, value most is coming home from uh, major international conferences with the right T-shirt or the challenge coin, as, as I'm, I'm sure Bonnie swag. could attest. 
<laughs> no, um, yes, no. I, I went to this this disarmament summit, and all I got was this <laughs> lousy, this this lousy ballistic missile. Exactly. <laughs> all, all Kim Jong Un gave me was this T-shirt. Well, I went to Libya, and all I got was this lousy nuclear weapon. Um, <laughs> um, all I got was this lousy nuclear war. Right. Oh, Rosa, you were not <laughs> dark enough that time, my friend. It was good. Um, I mean, so actually, I will offer an optimistic take on this one, right? Which is that uh, just because um, the Trump administration appears determined to pick fights with Iran uh, doesn't mean that the North Koreans will get spooked because of that, at least. Because the North Koreans, like everyone else in the world, have probably already figured out that the United States is not currently interested in a consistent approach to any particular issue. So doesn't make any difference what we're doing with regard to Iran. Uh, it's not a predictor of what we're going to do with regard to North Korea. That being said, the, the, if, if Pompeo appears to be, uh, uh, you know, the skunk in the, what is, what, what is the skunk in, in this metaphor? Garden party. Garden party. Right, the skunk goes to the garden party. I knew there was skunk went somewhere. Uh, uh, yeah, if, if Pompeo's the skunk at the Iran garden party, uh, the the skunk for North Korea seems to be John Bolton, or, or to quote uh, a South Korean uh, former unification minister, He's, he, as he put it, there are several landmines on the way to the summit between North Korea and the U.S. One of those landmines just exploded John Bolton. Um, so, you know, <laughs> it, it is the North Koreans do seem a little spooked by John Bolton, as well they should be. Yes, they probably uh, were beforehand. <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll say, well, they should have been at any time. But, I mean, there's yeah. a story in the New York Times today that actually accidentally quoted me, but, uh, you know, th th that talked about the people around Bolton. And and David, hold on. How did you get accidentally quoted by the New York Times? Well, <laughs> somebody called me and I talked to them. But but the, but the point is, the, the you know the the guys around Bolton are like the D team, and and they're you know they're people sort of from the swamp who had a lot of business ties or worked in some of his extreme uh, political campaigns, and he's not really talking to the people in the NSC. And it, it, it suggests that Bolton is likely to become more Bolton um, the, the closer we get to these things, which, Corey, can't be a good thing, can it? Uh, well, that would be amazing if Bolton, having been repudiated by the president when the North Koreans called him out as an impediment to progress because of, the, because of his Libya comparison, he said he was repugnant. <laughs> well, again, it the world is topsy-turvy when I find myself nodding in agreement with North Korean propaganda. <laughs> yeah. No, um, um, but I, I wonder why Bolton would be in the ascendancy on this policy when uh, a reasonable argument could be made that his insistence on uh, Libya as the metaphor for North Korea appears to have been what set the potential for the summit uh, falling through the floorboards. Well, how could so, that possibly be? The fact that Muammar Gaddafi was beaten to death and sodomized with, you know, objects. Oh, I 
did not need that visual, David. Yeah, but, 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 well, but neither did Kim Jong-un. You know, you invite exactly. a guy to a party. Exactly right. You invite a guy to a party and then you say, and this is how it could end up. That's like not such a great invitation. You know what I can't understand? It's that nobody in this administration, other than in the Pentagon, appears able to use their inside voice, right? Like Pompeo this morning talking about how maximum pressure on North Korea is the metaphor for Iran. That's the policy we're going for because it's working in North Korea. Even if it were working in North Korea, which I think the jury is still out on, um, why would you say that out loud? Uh, you know, this is an administration who says it can't talk about the deployments of American troops or our strategy for the wars we are engaged in because we don't want to help our adversaries. But then they say uh, the most uh, the most difficult to have as a shared perspective kinds of things in public for countries who they are plausibly trying to persuade to make compromises. Look, if this it administration- It doesn't make any sense. If they didn't have hypocrisy and lies, they wouldn't have anything to say. Um, and. You know the the you know the you know they say that kind of thing. They also say they hate the Obama administration for unmasking, um, you know, uh, uh, you know people in, in in at the end of the administration and investigations. And at the same time, today you had the president of the United States in the CIA saluting Devin Nunez, who's collaborating with him in an effort to unmask a confidential informant um, in an FBI investigation. So they're it's, hip -hop. It's both disgraceful and dangerous. It's it's both of those things. But um, it's also, David, if I could jump in, I mean, yeah. it's also the fact that they're they're not getting any pushback. I mean, if they were, you know, I feel like it's a child, and you and you're doing things that are that well, everyone knows is wrong. But if nobody's pushing back and saying this is wrong, and you you can't do that, I mean, they're just he doesn't. I mean, why should they feel as if they have to? control themselves or stop themselves. And, you know, there isn't anyone really, there's no one on the Hill really, you know, his party is not really pushing back on anything, you know? And so, you know, it's, 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 and you, you know, each time is something worse, but there's nothing that's being done about it. I, I've always thought, I've always thought that somebody should write a book called everything I need to know about foreign policy and diplomacy I learned in kindergarten. Well, I think that that's a, that's <laughs> that's, a that's, that seems to be the theme, which seems about right to me. Well, that no, I think that that's right. Um, although I still intend to write a book called Everything I Know About Foreign Policy and National Security I Learned in the Theater. Um, but that's a that's a that's a separate story. Um, Bonnie, though, you know, you know, who, as you've dealt with issues like this, I, I saw an, uh, uh, a quote from a, a former colleague of mine who now works for The Washington Post, Josh Rogan, who said that the period of maximum pressure uh, to which Corey just referred, is behind us. Um, and I think, you know, we've, we've seen that. We've talked about it here, you know, that within moments of the North Koreans grumbling about whether they might or might not come to this summit, the Trump administration said, oh, Libya, we didn't mean Libya. And, oh, you don't want B-52s in this exercise? We won't have B-52s in this exercise. And, you know, oh, by the way, and, and Trump himself said, by the way, um, Supreme Leader Kim, my good buddy, um, uh, if if you do this deal, you'll be rich and we'll protect you. And it, it looked, it sounded increasingly like you know he was pleading. It sounded also a little bit like a 
protection racket, but it sounded like he was pleading. <laughs> Uh, and 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 I, it seemed to me that U.S. leverage in this thing is over. Well, it's it's certainly changed, hasn't it? I mean, the the what we're hearing from from President Trump is definitely different from what we heard, let's say, you know, a month ago, or, or not even a month ago. Um, and you're right. I mean, the things that are that he's saying now are appear to be much more conciliatory and finding ways that we can work within uh, Kim Jong Un's. Uh, point and anger and what he's saying that he doesn't want us to do or not to do. Um, I think that the president's invested in this now. He's invested in this in this summit. He wants it to happen. Um, and he realizes that, you know, he has people, you know, saying that, you know, things have to happen at the summit. So he's invested in this. And so he doesn't want to see it not happen. He wants to do what he can to make it happen. He has to make sure that they show up at the table, uh, if nothing else. And so what? when he hears the you know, North Koreans saying that they're not even, you know, they're having second thoughts, he's going to say what he has to say to get them back at the table, even if it means going against his own national security advisor. Well, I think, Rosa, that gets us to the, the problem here, which is, you know, it's one thing to have maximum pressure and threaten to have a nuclear war and fire and fury and all of that stuff, if your objective is not to actually have a nuclear war, but to pressure people to the negotiating table. But if you then go to the negotiating table and you I beg and plead- they're okay with nuclear war, David. Well, that's the question. Because what happens when they leave this table? They're not gonna get the deal. There is no way the North Koreans go for denuclearization by any definition that the United States might offer for it, except for denuclearization doesn't actually mean denuclearization. Um, and so wh where do they go from there? I mean, do they go back to maximum pressure and saber rattling, or do you, do you think that they, they'll go a step further? Well, I, I, you know, again, two possibilities. Uh, we've talked about these before. One, one, is, one is that, in fact, uh, Trump is perfectly willing, you know, as we've seen on things like tariffs and as we've seen in a million other things, that, that you start out with this, this scary, big scary threat, okay, we're going to have a nuclear war unless you do X, Y, and Z. And they don't do X, Y, and Z, but you don't really want to have a nuclear war. And so then you say, uh, well, look, they did X, Y, and Z, even though they didn't. You know, that you come up with some Trumpish face-saving thing that makes no particular sense, isn't really true, but he just keeps saying it. He says, see, they do, they denuclearized, even though they didn't, you know, because he doesn't want to get into a big conflict. Uh, that's that's a real possibility. I think we've seen we've seen his bark be a lot worse than his bite on plenty of things, and we've we've seen him claim as concessions from others and victories, things that really weren't. Um, you know, the other possibility is that is that they don't care, that they're willing to have a catastrophic conflict. And I think some of, you know, some in the administration clearly are. You know, I think when it comes to John Bolton, he clearly is. He's fine with it. You know, he's he's willing to have other people pay the price. Well, I mean, that's a pretty scary possibility. Um, Corey, one of the things that seems to have emerged here is that the president's bark is worse than his bite or has been worse than his bite on international issues. Domestically, his bite has been worse than his bark in many cases. I'm going to look after the DACA people, but in fact, he doesn't do that. And he starts deporting them and, you know, he starts you know, he's damaged a lot of people. He's actually taken these damaging actions. But around the world, you know, he's like, he, he folds whenever things get rough. And the most recent example of this is with the China trade negotiations where he sent over a big team, says there's going to be a trade war. And then, you know, 
over the weekend, you know, says, well, maybe someday we've got a deal, but actually we don't. The Chinese are like saying we don't have a deal. And then Mnuchin goes, well, we're not going to have a trade war with the Chinese anyway. And, and we're not going to have a trade war with anybody on aluminum steel because we don't particularly like aluminum and steel um, trade wars anymore. And so, you know, I mean, in other words, he's 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 talked a tough game, but he blinks all the time. So I think that's right in negotiations, both domestic and international. What the difference I think I see is that um, President Trump makes outlandish claims for what he's going to do, and then for the most part doesn't do it. My working theory is that the president is banking on his supporters never caring, right? That they the announcement is what they are going to react to and vote on the basis of. They don't actually care what the policy is. So therefore, there will be no consequences for him not getting anything done. To the extent that they are capable of, of higher level reasoning, that would be my guess as to why they're doing what they're doing. Because otherwise, they have to you know, they have to bank on the fact that sooner or later, people are going to notice North Korea is not denuclearizing. And the president has already taken a victory lap and tried to claim a Nobel Prize. They might not notice until after 2020, though. Well, yeah, that so that I think is the White House theory, right? We'll make all sorts of announcements and people will believe that's what's happening. And if it gets bogged down in the courts or, uh, you know, if Syria continues to bleed and, you know, who'll notice the difference? I actually think they are cynical enough that that's their, that's their operative policy. Bonnie, I don't want you to reveal any confidences or relationships that you've got with, you know, former colleagues in the State Department or elsewhere in the government. But one of the things that doesn't seem like highly likely to me based on what we've just been talking about is that there's a lot of process beneath the surface regarding how we're handling this North Korea stuff or how we're handling the Iran stuff. In the past, an office like the one that you were involved with in the State Department would be deeply involved with this. And there would be a lot of process and internal discussion and plan, not just plan A and plan B, but lots of contingencies discussed. And this seems like it's all top line being handled by a couple of people, the president, one or two advisors. Um, and that also suggests that were it to come to a sort of in-depth, long-term negotiation, there would be a big disconnect. Is that something that worries you? Uh, you're right, and it does worry me because I think the reason why you're seeing seeing that and feeling that is because that is really reality. Um, I mean, we all know that the State Department has been somewhat decimated in many ways. I mean, it still it still you know has all the great people that do all the wonderful work that they do, but they have not you know, appointed a lot of people um, with ambassadors not being appointed for our, our overseas uh, posts. And there's been a, a morale problem. And a lot of it has been because the State Department has been, has not been used in its traditional role for, you know, really since the change of administration. And, and so a lot of these diplomatic efforts are being run by the White House. You don't have, um, as you said, the type of long-term, longer-term in-depth discussions um, in preparation for, for these meetings, um, 
you know, setting setting out what the what the um, the long term or short term goals are going to be, what the different options. Um, these are the things that would ha be happening right now in preparation for the summit. But you're not, you know, if it's happening, I'm not seeing it, and I know a lot of other people aren't seeing it. So, you know, and I think that will impact us in the long run because, as you said, any kind of any kind of thing on nuclear denuclearization de is not going to happen in one meeting if it happens at all. And these things take time. And the JCPOA took nearly two years. Um, and, you know, these things are not done overnight. And so you need to have a diplomatic corps that's able to do that. Um, and you don't really see that right now. So that's an issue that we, we do need to deal with, um, particularly, you know, following up and seeing what happens at the summit. But it's a problem. It's a problem in this area and a lot of other areas. We've only got a couple of minutes left in this uh, episode. But Rosa, one of the things that just strikes me as a paradox here is that these guys who sort of present themselves as tough guys, this is a, a tough guy administration that's going out and doing tough guy things, um, tend to be dealing in like crazy fantasies, as we talked about at the very beginning, whether it's denuclearization or the list of the Iran things, or we're going to get China to, you know, cut the, the, the trade deficit for two, by $200 billion, um, and on and on and on. It's, it's, it's funny because it's, it's so childish. They're imagining a world that cannot be. You, you might be being too nice to them, uh, David, by suggesting that it's craziness rather than cynical evilness, right? I mean, that's Corey's suggestion is that they don't actually think. They, they, they're, they're not stupid enough to think that this will somehow actually produce the results that they claim to want, that they know perfectly well it, want, it won't, and that they don't care. Uh, they don't care. They're perfectly willing to risk a catastrophic conflict because the impact of it of such a conflict will not be felt by them or any of their near and dearest, nearest and dearest. Uh, and they're also perfectly willing to play a game of pretend in which they're happy to pretend that they got something real, even though they didn't, uh, and just cross their fingers and hope that nobody notices for at least long enough for them to, you know, <laughs> make a little money and so forth uh, and get out of this. Um, I, you know, I don't think that we can dismiss that possibility that it's it's just deeply, deeply cynical. Well, that's one of the reasons I always turn to you at the end of these episodes. Um, because <laughs> you, you, you to take, pull the rug out from under us. Right. <laughs> you, you, you take my, my extremely dark view of the world and somehow make it worse. <laughs> um, which is it's, it's, it's really it's really quite an accomplishment and I, I credit you with that um, we'll be back with more discussion of this in the next episode a little bit later this week um, but in the meantime I want to thank you Bonnie for joining us for the first time we look forward to having Yay! you thank you, were, you. It's you been, I've enjoyed this thank you so much David You've and thanks uh, Corey and Rosa yeah, thank you, Corey and Rosa, and and thank you, Corey thank and Rosa, and, and and thank you, Deep State nerds everywhere for Yay, joining. Deep State nerds and for joining in. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with 
Goat Rodeo Productions, and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.